Artemis failed to launch. Pumpkin spice lattes are gonna cost more, and it's only Monday. The lead starts right now. The Justice Department takes the lead on reviewing documents seized from Mar-a-Lago as Team Trump keeps up its fight to get in on the process. Might this set up yet another legal fight? Plus, wild scenes of violence. A grocery store shot up in Oregon, an apartment set on fire to lure shooting victims out in Houston. And on the streets of D.C., an NFL rookie shot in an attempted robbery. And with a busy summer travel weekend just days away, customer complaints hit new highs. And it's not just airlines taking the calls. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Casey Hunt, in today for Jake Tapper. We begin this hour with the national security, legal, and political shockwaves still reverberating from the FBI's search of Mar-a-Lago three weeks ago. The director of national intelligence says the U.S. intelligence community is conducting a damage assessment of the documents that were taken from the former president's home. Remember, we learned last week that Trump still had 148 unique classified documents in his possession after he left office. 25 of those were marked top secret. This review is separate from the DOJ's criminal investigation and will help intelligence officials determine if any harm has been done to our national security. Meanwhile, sources close to the former president's legal team say that they want a special master appointed to essentially do what the DOJ says is already done. They still want this. The Justice Department said today it's identified a, quote, limited set of materials potentially covered by attorney-client privilege from the Mar-a-Lago search. As CNN's Sarah Murray reports, Republicans are demanding more transparency, many claiming the Justice Department overreached, which makes the attorney general's job all the more fraught with political peril. The Justice Department suggesting it's already well underway in digging through boxes of documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. Their point is well taken, which is this is too late. We're already looking at this material and we've got a process in place to protect it. In a new court filing, DOJ says it has identified a limited set of materials that could contain attorney-client privileged information. The progress report coming after former President Donald Trump's team asked a judge for a special master to oversee the review of evidence uncovered in the search. This as the fallout continues over how Trump handled classified documents after leaving office. This guy, we now know, 184 classified document, 25 of them top secret. And by the way, Countries that want to do us harm want to see these documents. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines telling Congress officials are conducting a damage assessment of the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago, including an assessment of the potential risk to national security that would result from the disclosure of relevant documents. DOJ saying in its court filing it's working alongside intelligence officials to facilitate a review of classified materials. This is disgusting in my mind. And, uh, and, like, this, no president should act this way, obviously. Some of Trump's closest allies, meantime, are leaping to his defense, like South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. I'll say this. If there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information after the Clinton debacle... Who suggested a Trump indictment would set political tensions aflame. There'll be riots in the streets. 
while New Hampshire Republican Governor Chris Sununu questions the timing of the Mar-a-Lago search. Former President Trump has been out of office for going on two years now. Where, why, I think this is a coincidence just happening a few months before the midterm elections and all that sort of thing. So, you know, this is unprecedented. Republican Senator Roy Blunt also raising concerns about the timing, but admitting Trump should have returned the documents immediately. I understand he turned over a lot of documents. He should have turned over all of them. Uh, I imagine he knows that very well now as well. Now, when it comes to that trove of documents the FBI took from Mar-a-Lago and whether there are potentially privileged items in there, the judge who is overseeing this issue has suggested that she's open to appointing a special master. She set a hearing for this issue on Thursday, Casey. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks very much for that report. CNN Chief White House Correspondent Caitlin Collins joins us now live. Uh, Caitlin, how is Trump world responding to all the new, new developments here? So they were excited over the weekend, Casey, when they saw this judge signaling her intent to grant their request for this third party attorney known as a special master. I was told that they were expecting the Justice Department to make the argument this week that they had already kind of gone through this because that's what DOJ is basically saying today, that before the judge even made that ruling on Saturday, that they were already in the process of having this filter team go through where they identified what they believe are these potentially materials covered by attorney-client privilege, and that they were basically already on the path to take the steps that are appropriate to take after that. So the Trump team kind of had an idea this was coming, and I think the concern is that this could potentially undercut their push to get a special master. They are still hopeful that in the end they will actually still get one because they've been making a separate argument, which is about executive privilege and arguing that some of the materials that were taken by the FBI when they conducted this search are presidential materials that are covered by executive privilege. We haven't seen the Justice Department really address that exactly in this motion. They said they would have more to say later this week, so we'll see if that is something that they note there. But the Trump team is still hopeful that they will get that third-party attorney. Uh, Of course, really what all this does is bring it back to highlight the timing here, which is so many people, even in Trump's own, own orbit, his own allies, raised the questions of why they waited so long to file to try to get this special master, why they didn't do it immediately after the search happened. And instead, of course, as you know, Casey, waited two weeks. Right. So what does the Biden administration have to say about the damage assessment that the intelligence community is conducting? Yeah, this is being done by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and also the Justice Department, basically trying to figure out what damage was potentially done by having this classified information. Some of it's so sensitive that you're only supposed to see it in a secure government facility and not take it out of that facility at the former president's property, where they did not know exactly who was going in this room. We know they've since gotten the footage of the surveillance footage from right outside the room where some of these documents were kept. And so basically they're conducting this assessment to see, did this potentially compromise sources and methods? Does it affect the way that they're collecting intelligence now going forward? The White House says they were not aware of this this assessment being conducted. They do say they believe it's the appropriate measure to take, though. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks very much for your reporting. We really appreciate it. I want to bring in now Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy of Illinois. He serves on the Intelligence and Oversight Committees. Sir, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. So you heard Caitlin's reporting right there, the Trump, that Trump's legal team, they're still saying they want a special master appointed in this case, despite the fact that DOJ announced that a special filter team has already finished its review. Do you think uh, that reality preempts the need for a special master? I mean, could having two reviews provide some reassurance that this is all above board? Possibly, but I think that uh, because of some sloppiness and delays and the nature of their filings, 
it, it appears that perhaps the Justice Department's review renders their request moot. Um, all that being said, whatever the, the judges decide to um, preserve the confidentiality of any materials that Donald Trump uh, rightfully uh, claims ownership of that is not classified, that is not related to uh, what the FBI and DOJ are interested in, uh, they, he, they should conduct that review and make sure. But it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the underlying questions that we have about why all these classified documents were carted away, hundreds, uh, including ones related to clandestine sources, and why Donald Trump didn't just return them when he was asked repeatedly over the course of almost 15 months. Right. So the director of national intelligence sent a letter to both of these committees that you serve on uh, saying that the intelligence community is currently conducting this damage assessment to try and figure out exactly how much damage was done, as you say, uh, by potentially having these sources and methods in an unsecure location at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, what's the worst case scenario of what they might find? And I mean, are, are we the public ever going to find out what that is? I don't know, uh, but I, I think that we on the committees uh, will get a briefing once Avril Haines and her team do their work at the director of national intelligence office. I think the worst case scenario would be, you know, a lot of those classified documents, especially the top secret uh, documents, have the marking HCS, which stands for Human Control Systems, which is a way of uh, basically controlling and masking uh, information related to spies. Uh, as well as their sources in, um, in, in, in our foreign adversaries' countries. And uh, the worst-case scenario is that our foreign adversaries would somehow get a hold of that information. And um, we've all read about the spies and um, our operatives and our sources um, having been executed or worse uh, to their families um, in the past. And so we don't want any of that to possibly have happened. God forbid it happened. But um, we need to know what the damage is, how to mitigate it, and how to prevent it from happening again. Literally lives on the line there. Um, let me get, let me, this is a, a political question, really, but I want, I want your reaction to something Republican Senator Lindsey Graham uh, said about this, the matter um, over the weekend. Watch. They try to prosecute President Trump for mishandling class out classified information after Hillary Clinton set up a server in her basement. They literally will be riots in the street. I worry about our country. Riots in the streets. He made that point twice in the course of the interview. I mean, was that an off-the-cuff concern from the senator? Was it a pointed warning? I mean, what did you make of that? I don't know what to make of it, Casey. I think that that type of rhetoric is just irresponsible, that kind of vitriolic rhetoric. Uh, does plant the seed in certain people of doing exactly what uh, the substance of his message says. We all know that, you know, I'll just tell you, the University of Chicago did a recent study on um, the number of times the words civil war appeared on Twitter uh, in the hours before Donald Trump took the truth social to uh, attack the FBI. They said it appeared something like 400 or 500 times an hour after he went onto Twitter and went after the FBI in such harsh terms and used rhetoric similar to what Lindsey Graham said, uh, the word civil war appeared 16,000 times per hour, Casey. Wow. And so what these, um, you know, really important elected officials and others say is very important. And 
Um, I would just say we should all cool our rhetoric and let the process unfold. Uh, there ever was and, a lesson. And, yeah. Yes, exactly. There, let, 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 let's not, let's not inflame passions. Right. If there ever was a lesson from January 6th, uh, it's that this kind of rhetoric really um, does drive real world action. Um, let me ask you this. Let me put it to you this way, though. Republican Senator Roy Blunt, he's retiring at the end of this year. He did raise some concerns about the timing of what's been going on from DOJ. Watch. What I wonder about is why this could go on for almost two years and less than 100 days before the election. Suddenly we're talking about this rather than the economy or inflation or even the student loan program. So the governor of New Hampshire has also raised similar questions. He's a Republican. I mean, do you think that they have a point? I mean, the timing, we are awfully close to an election, which is pretty unusual. And of course, Democrats uh, control the White House, the executive branch, the Department of Justice. I think that, um, you know, for the longest time, the Justice Department basically said, you know, please return the documents, pretty please return the documents, pretty please with sugar on top, return the documents. It never happened. Then they talked to the civilians, uh, various witnesses at Mar-a-Lago and elsewhere about what was going on with these documents. And as you can tell from the numerous redactions of those names, there are a lot of people concerned about what was going on with all these classified documents. And they acted um, as quickly as they could following what they learned from these witnesses. Um, I think the bigger question to me is, um, why? again, why weren't these documents returned? And every time they asked for those documents and then they went and received some, there turned out to be more and more and more, which just leaves the questions, what other documents are there at Mar-a-Lago? Were any documents removed? And were any documents destroyed? And um, also, is there any obstruction of justice? That's another big question that's in the, in the affidavit. All right. Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, thank you so much for being here, sir. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Casey. Then there's Trump's legal defense in all of this. What to read into his strategies so far and why some say his attorneys are disconnected from reality. Plus, launch scrubbed. What NASA is saying about postponing today's moon mission and the chances of another liftoff attempt on Friday. The national lead, a weekend of especially disturbing violence across America. An NFL rookie shot in our nation's capital and three killed in Houston after a man set fire to an apartment and shot people as they ran away. And two killed at an Oregon grocery store where a gunman armed with an AR-15 style rifle shot at people in the parking lot and then continued the carnage inside. CNN's Bryn Gingras has more on the violence from coast to coast. There were 10 to 20 shots, and then another 10 to 20 shots. The sound of rapid gunfire coming from a Safeway supermarket in Bend, Oregon. Just one of many shootings happening across the country over the weekend. Bend authorities say a man walked into the grocery store while firing an AR-15-style rifle, making his way through the aisles, menacing customers and workers. It was loud enough to make me and three other employees ran into a walk-in refrigerator and close the door and stayed there. We stayed hidden until the authorities arrived. Two people were killed and police found the gunman dead inside the store. Weapons were found near his body, a motive still not known. In D.C., we, we really got to start getting to the point where we start talking about gun safety. Washington commander's head coach expressed his frustration with the gun violence after his rookie running back became a victim. 
Brian Robinson Jr., drafted by the commanders this year, was shot twice in the lower body during an attempted robbery, according to police. He's very fortunate. It's a very unfortunate situation, but he's doing well, you know, and, and it's just it'll be a matter of time uh, before he's back out here. Two Phoenix, Arizona officers were injured while exchanging gunfire with a suspect armed with a semi-automatic rifle and wearing tactical gear who went on a shooting spree. This is a massive crime scene. That suspect killed two people before turning the gun on himself, according to police. In New York City, 16 people were shot, five killed in more than a dozen shootings, one breaking out on the packed Coney Island boardwalk. We have five people hanging out on the boardwalk. Uh, really just sitting on the benches, enjoying a nice summer night, and uh, shots are fired from the nearby housing development. Houston police pointing to an eviction notice possibly leading to this horrific scene where three people were gunned down. This suspect, unfortunately, and very sadly and very evilly, uh, set fire uh, to several residents, laid wait for those residents to come out and fired upon them. That gunman was killed during a shootout with authorities, says the police chief. And in Detroit, the same weapon may be linked to the killings of three people in what authorities are calling random incidents. One was waiting on a bus, uh, one was walking his dog, uh, and one was just on the street. And in the Windy City, it was a five-year-old boy shot in the head in what the community is now calling a crisis on Chicago's children. All these kids want to do is go to school and play, and they can't even do that. And that's messed up. They can't even do that. And it just keeps happening. And we just got an update from police there in Bend, Oregon, who say that suspect in that grocery store shooting is 20-year-old Ethan Miller. We learned more at that news conference also about the victims. The first one was a customer, 84 years old, and the second one, an employee of that grocery store, 66-year-old, who authorities say engaged the shooter inside the store and likely was saved some lives in doing so. Now, authorities also say they have served a search warrant at Miller's home in his car. They found Molotov cocktails. And Casey, they don't say exactly what the motive is here yet, though, but CNN has uncovered some blog posts, dozens of them, actually, from Miller. And uh they're pretty graphic. He essentially says he blames COVID, the quarantine for worsening his mental health, kind of saying that he was going to do a school shooting actually next month, couldn't wait for it, and just said basically he's a ticking time bomb and that might have led to what happened. But of course, authorities still trying to figure that out. Just devastating there. And then all of these incidents you tick through across the country. What a terrible weekend. All right, CNN's Bryn, J- Bryn Gingrass. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for being here. Coming up next, recalculating with 71 days now until the midterms, a Republican reality check about just how many seats they may or may not gain. The politics lead. Republicans are seizing on the heavily redacted affidavit to accuse the Justice Department of a midterm political hit on Donald Trump. Even as the affidavit and other legal documents show evidence of a long-term effort that started well before the August 8th search, to get back documents that Trump had taken from the White House. Let's bring in New York Times senior political correspondent Maggie Haberman and Spectrum News political anchor Errol Lewis. Uh, Thank you both so much for being here. Um, Maggie, I read with interest uh, the the piece that you put out yesterday about the, um, shall we say, perplexing legal strategy that the um, Trump team is employing here. You write, quote, "The, the legal arguments put forth by his team sometimes strike lawyers not involved in the case as more about setting a political narrative 
and about dealing with the possibility of a federal prosecution. So why are they handling the investigation this way? I think there's a a couple of reasons, uh, Casey, but one is that Donald Trump tends to act as his own strategic advisor, comms director, and sometimes lawyer. And so, I mean, if you we write in that story, if you read some of his legal actions over time, they, they sometimes read as if he dictated them. They read like rally yeah. addresses that are, you know, he is scripting. Uh, and he has, over time, had a lot of lawyers who have a hard time pushing back on him or who are eager to please him. And I think you are seeing a fair amount of that. One of the things that's been perplexing that they've done, and this I do think is him as well, they've actually been very slow in this whole, in their responses yeah. on this. They were very slow to ask for a special master uh, in the, the search and what was taken. Then when they did, they didn't ask for a special master for attorney-client privilege. It was for executive privilege, which the, the current administration has already said doesn't apply to him. So this is part of why it all looks as if it is about something other than the legal, the, the legal aspects of this as opposed to the political one. Right. It, it seems like the stakes are higher than they have ever been for him, though. I mean, I, I take your point about the parallels. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's, no, there's no question. I mean, he is continuing to act as if this is the same thing as everything else that he has dealt with. Investigations before he was president, investigations while he was president. He's not president anymore. And so right. he's not protected by the office. He doesn't have sort of the support of the office uh, and the constitutional armor of the office. And I think that he has not quite realized that yet. And the fact that he doesn't have it in is in a lot of ways why the Justice Department, I think, is moving in the way that it has, because they can't afford to start taking these kind of actions, searching his home, for example, while he's a declared candidate for president. And so in some ways, they've speeded up the timeline in part to prevent exactly where we see this going, which is it turning into a political debate rather than a legal one. But I do think it's important, too, to note something actually that you talked about when we were starting this conversation uh, you know, his folks have said, yes, this is this is a witch hunt. This is an unfair search. The the Justice Department has tried very hard to document the ways in which he stalled, resisted, didn't do what they were asking him to do in terms of returning documents. Uh, you know, he has argued that he declassified everything. They've shown no evidence of that at all. Uh, the statutes that were used in the search warrant aren't even about uh, classified material. And so, you have seen all of this back and forth, and the Trump people have tried to paint this as we were so cooperative, we've been working with the Justice Department. These are long negotiations, and you can see very clearly from the Justice Department's perspective that is not at all the case. Right. So this is all, of course, taking place uh, along the backdrop of the midterm elections, which, I mean, many Republicans have talked about the investigation in the context of this. But uh, it's also, I I think, and, and the Republican, many of the Republican sources that I've talked to, I think that perhaps having him in the news is leading to um, increased pessimism. And CNN is now reporting that House Republicans are getting more and more pessimistic about their chances of winning at least a massive majority in the midterm election, which had been uh, something of an expectation. I mean, everyone I've talked to, is they're still confident that they're going to retake the House. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi has a very narrow majority um, right now, and the, the map is favorable. Historical trends are favorable. Um, but some of Kevin McCarthy's allies are on edge about his future. I would argue there's many reasons for him to be on edge about his future, but I think it's gotten a little more acute in recent days. I mean, do you what, what do you make of well, you, all of you, this? You put all of the eggs in one basket, and they did as a party. They said pretty much formally at their last convention that uh, we stand for whatever it is Donald Trump tells us we stand for. You put all your eggs in one basket, uh, you better not drop the basket. And in this case, you've got multiple <laughs> investigations uh, into Donald Trump. You've got uh, pro- he's got problems with his popularity. He's got legal problems. He's got commercial legal problems. He's got political legal problems. Uh, and so uh, it doesn't look as certain as it did before. But you're absolutely right. I mean, they need net, what, five seats, six seats? And on average, since World War II, 
the president's party loses 26 seats. So right. even if they half perform, they're going to be fine as far as getting a majority. But they have great reason to be concerned because uh, every amount of polling that we can look at says that people like the Constitution. You know, people like the rule of law. People don't think that ex-president should be able to steal uh, or, or appropriate federal documents or secret documents and not turn it back. And so um, they're, they're going to have to live and die with Donald Trump. That was the decision they made. And as we can already see, it's not going to go as easy in the midterms as they might have hoped. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that I think Mitch McConnell knows and has tried to remind everyone in, in his orbit is that Donald Trump lost <laughs> the election uh, and he thinks that he could still be a big loser um, for the party. Um, Maggie, I do want to ask you, though, about you know, one other piece of this and, and some of the reason why Democrats are optimistic it doesn't have to do with Donald Trump at all. In fact, it's about Roe versus Wade, overturning it, how that shaped the political environment. And several Republicans in close races seem to be, if not moderating their positions, then at least uh, adjusting them in public. The latest example is from a Michigan Republican. This is Tom Barrett. Take a look. On the left is the values section that he removed from his website. It had touted his anti-abortion stance. Instead, he replaced it with a life section attacking his opponent as being extreme, quote-unquote, on abortion, and only briefly mentioning that he is pro-life. I mean, what what is your take on the way Republicans are recalibrating here and what it means? I think... I think- with with some exceptions, you are generally seeing Republicans in in uh, generally statewide contests. Less so, uh, you know, in in hard right districts, more conservative districts, more red districts, uh, for House races, who are recognizing that having a very very hard right position uh, against abortion does not actually play that well in a general election. And there is an aspect to which uh, having undone Roe v. Wade for conservatives is is the dog that caught the car. And it's not really clear what you do when that happens. Uh, you know, I remember hearing from strategists uh, among Republicans a few months ago, this probably isn't going to matter that much. Well, that's not true. It actually yeah. has mattered a great deal. And, and they have still not figured out what their answer is. But you are right that the combination of Dobbs, and it's not just a political theoretical at this point, it's that you can point to various laws in various states, you can point to actions that are being taken against mothers, not just women uh, who are in search of abortion, but in terms of prenatal care and after effects that have not been thought of when this law was undone nationally. And so I think you are seeing this combination of of post-Dobbs energy animating Democrats in a a big way, combined with Donald Trump reemerging as an issue. Right now, that looks very good for Democrats. It's August, you know, but we have seen at least some early signs that that is going to play out in Democrats' favor. No, I mean, the reality is, and it's a very good point, a lot of these state laws are out of step with there may be a majority of Americans who are willing to place some limits on abortion, but these laws are much more extreme than the vast majority support. Errol Lewis, Maggie Haberman, thank you uh, both very much uh, for being here. We really appreciate it. Coming up next, evidence of Russian troops caught off guard by sudden moves just made in southern Ukraine. The world lead. Ukrainian troops have taken back four villages that were under Russian occupation in southern Ukraine, according to a Ukrainian military source. The main target of operations is in the city of Hershon, considered crucial to the control of Ukraine's southern coast. And senior U.S. officials tell CNN that Ukrainian forces are launching a significant counteroffensive in southern Ukraine. CNN's Sam Kiley is in the region. Sam, the White House says that the threat of this counteroffensive is already having an impact. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's not just the White House. Uh, the international other allies of uh 
uh, the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians themselves have been saying this for some time, but I think it's given more credence coming from the Pentagon and Jim Shudo's reporting that the uh, Pentagon is saying that they know that or believe that uh, Russian units are sometimes 50% under strength, that the shaping operations, these are operations to cut logistic supply lines, blow up bridges, uh, knock out uh, ammunition dumps, uh, blow up uh, aircraft on the, on the ground in particular. All of these have added to, to two real major problems to the Russians, very severe logistics problems, particularly on the Kherson front, and also problems with morale. If you add to that, uh, the, 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 the Russians need to replenish their troops. Pentagon estimates say at least 70,000, possibly more, have already been killed in six months of fighting. They're in a bit of trouble, uh, but they still have the edge in terms of numbers and in terms of the amount of equipment. Now, the Ukrainians have launched this counteroffensive now using air and ground assets, but above all, the new NATO supply technology, led by the United States, but by no means alone. Large numbers of allies of the Ukrainians are sending their most modern weapons, particularly artillery, uh, and that seems to be having an effect in this latest counteroffensive. On another topic, members from the U.N. nuclear watchdog agency are on their way to the Russian-occupied Ukrainian nuclear power plant as there is shelling near the facility and fears of a nuclear accident are on the rise. What's the significance here? Well, it's highly significant that the IAEA, the U.N. body responsible for monitoring nuclear power stations around the world, is able to get in at all uh, with the agreement of both the Russians and the Ukrainians because the Zaporizhia nuclear power station is on the front line. It is being used as a firebase by the Russians. Both sides accuse each other of dangerous shelling in and around uh, the location. We don't have independent verification for who's doing the shelling, although locals have told us that it's the Russians. Uh, but the Russians claim that it's the Ukrainians. Nonetheless, it is on an active front line. It has six reactors. It's the biggest nuclear power station in Europe. And were there a disaster there, it could be matched something on the scale of Chernobyl. So that is why it matters. Incredible. Sam Kiley in Ukraine, thanks very much for that report. Turns out it was an Artemis today. What forced NASA to scrap the moon launch Then airline passengers so frustrated with delays and cancellations, they're taking their complaints up a notch. Our out-of-this-world lead isn't out-of-this-world after all, and that is, of course, the problem. Today's anticipated launch of NASA's Artemis One mission to the moon has been postponed. The launch team was unable to fix an issue in one of the rocket's four engines. NASA officials say Friday is still in play for a possible launch. CNN's Kristen Fisher takes a look at what went wrong. Ignition and liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery. Engine number 2058 has helped propel six space shuttles into orbit, starting with this flight back in 2006. Scrub of the attempt of launch of Artemis 1. But today, the system that cools that engine was the primary culprit behind the scrub of the first test flight of the Artemis moon rocket. We need the engine to be at the uh, cryogenically cool temperature such that when it starts, it's not shocked with all the the cold fuel that flows through it. NASA says it's too soon to determine when it will try again. But Artemis mission manager Mike Serafin gave a classic NASA response when addressing if the next launch opportunity on Friday is still in play. There's a non-zero chance we'll we'll have a launch opportunity on Friday. (laughs) The Artemis rocket, or SLS, has largely been cobbled together using leftover parts from the shuttle program. 
The four RS-25 engines on Artemis One combined flew more than 20 shuttle missions. NASA had hoped that by recycling these old parts, they'd be able to build this new rocket faster and more affordably. Instead, the SLS rocket is six years behind schedule and billions over budget. We know these shuttle parts were very finicky and expensive, and so it shouldn't have been any surprise that putting them together differently uh, was going to also be expensive and take longer than we hoped. Still, this rocket is the most powerful ever built, and thousands of people converged on the Kennedy Space Center today in hopes of seeing it fly for the first time, including Vice President Kamala Harris. Today um, was a very important day, and while a lot of folks might be disappointed that the launch did not actually happen, a lot of good work really happened today. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, whose own shuttle flight scrubbed four times, reminded that these kinds of delays are routine for any spaceflight, but especially a first test flight. This is a brand new rocket. It's not going to fly until it's ready. Needless to say, the complexity uh, is daunting when you bring it all into the focus of a countdown. Now, despite all of these technical concerns, despite all of these financial concerns, this rocket is still the only rocket in the world capable of carrying people all the way to the moon that is this close to being ready to fly. Now, SpaceX is working on its own rocket that would do that. It's called Starship, but it's not ready just yet. Uh, the SpaceX rocket is reusable, though, which would make it much more affordable, while the SLS rocket is fully expendable, meaning it can only be used once, which, once, which is why, KC, uh, NASA officials are being so careful, making sure they get everything right with this launch. They can't afford to lose it. Casey? All right, Kristen Fisher, thanks very much for that report. The money lead. More chaos, more complaints. Air travelers are sounding off after a summer plagued with problems, especially those tens of thousands of cancellations and delays. This is airlines scramble to prepare to meet Labor Day weekend travel demand. Let's bring in CNN's Pete Mantine. Uh, Pete, how significant is this jump in air travel complaints? And I, I will cop to um, being, <laughs> being a complainer. Well, Casey, you know, really, this reflects the pain that passengers have been experiencing over this summer of staffing troubles for airlines, 45,000 flight cancellations in total since June 1st, according to FlightAware. And in the month of June, that is when we saw some of the worst days for flight cancellations. So this new Department of Transportation data from June really reflects that 50, sorry, more than 50 percent about uh, are about these complaints are about delays and cancellations and refunds. Twenty eight percent are about delays and cancellations. Twenty five percent of these complaints are about refunds. Fifty eight hundred complaints in total during the month of June. Compare that to June of 2019, where we saw 1,500 complaints. So the increase almost threefold, 270% compared to pre-pandemic figures. This is a really significant number and only adds ammo to the federal push for airlines to step up their game, especially as we're going into this big Labor Day rush. I want you to listen now to United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby, and he tells me that this is really, in some ways, on the federal government and its air traffic control system. Listen. 
frankly, the bigger challenges are not the airlines themselves. They're all the support infrastructure around aviation that hasn't caught up as quickly. Let me push back on that just a tiny bit because United has had 5,000 cancellations this summer. What do you say to somebody who does see this as an airline issue rather than some other cause? Well, first I would say we're doing everything we can to get the airline running reliably. We know that's the most important thing for a customer. It's our number one priority. We had ground stops for the entire day. Um, and when the FAA says you can't land airplanes at the airport, you're going to have delays and cancellations. The Department of Transportation is about to roll out a new website which reminds passengers of their rights airline to airline. But these new numbers, Casey, really show just how desperate passengers are right now taking their complaints straight to the federal government to try and get their money back and to try and tell them about these cancellations and delays. Casey. And of course, we're heading into another busy travel uh, season with the Labor Day weekend coming up. Pete Mantine, thanks very much for that report. As she prepares to take the court for what is possibly her final tournament, Serena Williams has a message for the world. To our sports lead, Gatorade, honoring the greatest of all time, Serena, in a new ad narrated by another goat, Beyonce. Serena Williams deserves. When the world writes her down in history, we'll begin where she started, at love. The ad coming just hours before what Serena says will be the last tournament of her extraordinary career. She posted on Instagram today a cover of herself from Time magazine with a caption saying, quote, thank you, everyone. It's been incredible. Let's bring in CNN's Carolyn Mano live at the U.S. Open in New York. Carolyn, what do we expect out of Serena tonight? Well, Casey, if she can serve well and handle the magnitude of the moment, I think she's got a good chance. You know, you never underestimate greatness, and that's exactly what she is. She's been practicing match play simulation all week with her head coach, Renee Stubbs, to try to get ready. She hasn't had a chance to play as many matches as she would have liked because she has been fighting injury. But, you know, even she is not immune to the pressure that comes with the most highly anticipated first-round match in U.S. Open history. Her coach, Renee Stubbs, says they are truly taking this one match at a time and it starts tonight take a listen the most important thing is to have her be healthy and happy and you know get through that first round and get the love and the adulation of the fans and the people on monday night and then once she gets through the first round then we'll start thinking about the next round and maybe maybe we'll we'll have that fantastic thought of maybe winning the tournament but the most important thing for serena is the first round you know, that pressure goes both ways, Casey, right? I mean, it's a pressure-fed moment for Serena Williams, but also for any opponent that faces her. This crowd is so hungry for her already. There's such a sense of anticipation here. But as it comes to her legend, it's really hard to even quantify the impact that she has had on the sport and beyond as a strong, independent, unforgiving black woman. And there are so many women here and that are playing here and also all across the world who have just identified with her and found something in themselves because of her. I mean, there are little girls being born that bear her name that she's never met. And the Coco Goffs of the world, the Sloan Stevens of the world, Naomi Osaka, you know, they all point to her and say she did it and I knew that I could do it. And so as she moves into this next step uh, in her life, that'll still be a huge part of her life. But everybody wants it to just go as far as it can tonight uh, through the rest of this tournament, potentially her last Grand Slam. We will all be watching. Carolyn Mano. Thank you very much for that report. If you ever miss an episode of this show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Don't go anywhere, though. Our coverage continues now at The Situation Room. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.